Welcome to this episode of the Perfect Part Podcast. In today's episode, I am joined by incredible golf instructor Virgil Herring. Virgil, thanks for being with me today. Carter, thanks for having me on your show, buddy. I appreciate it. Yeah. So for the few people who don't know who you are, tell them a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm currently the director of golf at Ensworth uh, High School. Um, And with that, I'm also a full-time PGA teaching professional, um, most notably uh, helping junior golfers uh, achieve their dream of playing college golf and wherever that may take them. So I'm now currently sitting on my 193rd player to receive a golf scholarship since I've been teaching golf. Wow. And the thing that I always try to remind people of 193, only one of them, one of them has played on the PGA tour uh, with his full card and only six others have, uh, have played on, on the web.com corn Ferry tour. So make sure you, you pick a good, good education when you go, because it's really hard to get to the top, but it's a beautiful vehicle to get you to the top. That's for sure. Yeah. So, um, how did you yourself first get into golf? I got into golf, um, mainly due to a rotator cuff injury as a pitcher. When I was 14, first time I tore a rotator cuff, I was 14. I actually thought it was 15 until recently when I did a little backtracking, it was 14. Um, so I was 14 years old, tore my rotator cuff, couldn't play baseball. And I saw my neighbor hitting a plastic golf ball from like one tree to another stump to another wash line pole. And I walk over. I've never really seen it. I mean, I, I know that what golf was at the time, but I've never seen anybody play it and I've never done it. I asked him what he was doing. He said he was playing the Masters. And uh, so I just started playing. So I started playing right-handed, mainly because my dad said that there was nobody uh, that played golf left-handed. And about nine months later, uh, when his dad passed away, my grandfather passed away, we were cleaning out the garage. And lo and behold, what did we find? Left-handed golf club. (laughs) So that's how I got started for real, was when I started playing left-handed, I felt like I I was an athlete then. Instead of like this uncoordinated mess right-handed, I felt like I was an athlete. Yeah. And I fell in love with the game because in baseball, if I pitched a great game and we lost one to nothing, uh, I was pretty excited about my performance and the coach would, would be upset that I wasn't upset that we lost. And if I didn't play as good of a game as I'd like, but we won, he would be upset that I wasn't elated that the team won. And right. I And I was – uh, elated that the team won and I was disappointed that we lost when we didn't win, but I didn't, uh, I still had my personal goals. Well, golf allowed me to get a direct relationship between the quality of my performance and the quality of the outcome. And I've, I, I was in search of a sport that took away other people's opinions on who was better and the only thing that matters in golf is the far right number on your scorecard. And that's the judge, whoever shot the lowest score. And I fell in love with the, the fact that I got what I deserved instead of sometimes I got what I deserved and sometimes I didn't. And that's why I love golf. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the main reasons I enjoy it so much and got into it 
Um, I first played soccer for, for years, eight years, actually. Um, but having the individual aspect of it allowed me to be dependent only on myself, which I really like. So uh, you apparently played junior golf. How was your junior golf career? Well, when I was playing junior golf, there weren't nearly as many uh, golf tournaments to play. And high school golf mattered a little bit more because there was less tournaments to play. And so I never played in an AJGA event because there was never one really even close to me. And I played in some local local tours. And every year I, I played, I got better, which is, well, no duh, right? You know, you, you <laughs> um, but, you know, when I was 15, I would only be playing golf left-handed for about eight months. And I was, you know, having a hard time breaking 100. And then on Christmas, my I got a set of fitted golf clubs instead of clubs that were 75 years old with rotted leather grips <laughs> and, uh, and a net. And I hit balls every day until literally the golf balls that I had down in my garage had no dimples left. So in four months, from Christmas Day till the end of March, or I, uh, right you know, at the end of April, I'm sorry, it wasn't quite warm enough in Pennsylvania when I grew up until then. Uh-huh. I had probably hit 800 balls a day for four straight months. And they were literally, the golf balls were unrecognizable. They, all the dimples were off. You couldn't see a name brand. And the first round of golf I played was uh, Easter weekend, 1989, left-handed with my new clubs. And I shot 81. So I never shot a score in the nineties. And I almost never shot a score in the eighties. I improved, I improved that much. And literally I'm all self-taught. So my main, my first coach, was a video called Jack Nicholas Golf My Way. And I promise you, I've watched it over a thousand times. And, you know, it's one of the classic instruction from, you know, arguably the greatest golfer ever. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is when I watch my golf swing now, even though I'm left handed, if you flip it around right handed, it has a lot of similar features to Jack Nicholas. And it's kind of funny how the eyes and the, the mirroring uh, capabilities of the brain. Uh, make things happen. And he was my coach, not a bad coach, even though I never <laughs> spoke to him once about it. Right. Since you shot so good, um, why did you not eventually go pro? Well, I mean, I, I've won 14 times as a professional, but there's a big difference between a PGA Tour level player and really the next level down. It's so dramatically different between Rory McIlroy and the number one player in college golf. It's staggering. And I was good, but not that good. And the there were a couple of key features on why. I mean, I, I in 95, I thought that I, I was really starting to come into my own when I was a, a junior in college. And I just, I'd shoot some good scores, but I'd never been able to put I never was able to put three days together, even in, in my entire life. All of the tournaments that I won were either one-day sprints or two-day events, except for one event. Uh, other than that, they were all one one or two-dayers. Just never was able to put it all together, mainly because I didn't drive the ball effectively enough. I drove it longer than everybody, but I wasn't effective consistently. And I think what a lot of people get consumed with in golf is that they think they're awesome at something and not good at something else, 
when in all actuality, they might be better at something. But I was under the belief that I was not a very good middle and long iron player, mainly because I'd hardly ever hit long irons. And when I did hit middle irons, I'd be playing them out of the rough and I wouldn't have the control. Right. Um, so I had this illusion that I was not very good with my six, seven or eight iron. But when I won golf tournaments, I started doing some serious diving into how and why. I started winning golf tournaments when I didn't hit my driver well on the driving range, and I just started trying to put the ball in play off the tee. And fortunately for me, I hit it very long, so I'd hit my two iron like 270, and I would just hit irons off the tee until I got comfortable. And a lot of the rounds of golf that I won early in my professional career came from never hitting the club that I thought I w- that made me dangerous, which was my driver. And it also demonstrated that I would hit a lot of six, seven, and eight irons very close to the hole when I was in the fairway. So it helped me stabilize and get a little equilibrium in my attitude about myself because I didn't drive the golf ball as good as I thought I did. And I was nowhere near as poor of an iron player as I thought I was. And to be able to put all of those things in proper perspective really allowed me to take my game to the next level. And then of course, as video and Doppler radar technology and decade golf and all of the other things that have come along to help uh, people understand how to play better golf. I just evolved with it. And I would also say at the end of it all, Carter, I'm a coach by nature. Even when I was playing, I was spending too much time. I wouldn't say a lot of time, but too much time either helping others or, you know, keeping an eye on my friends, golf swings and stuff like that. And I'm I'm just a, I'm a coach at heart. And I really love understanding how the body, the body brain connection is integral to performing at a high level. And that's turned into my passion. And that's what I, that's why I do what I do now. Yeah. So was there, was there ever a a certain moment where you realized, okay, I'm not going to be able to make it on the PGA tour. Uh, let, let's go into coaching. Uh, there were, in, when, in 1995, I lost two tournaments in a row, three putting, three of the last four holes. And I had this feeling, I looked in the mirror, it was one of those terrible moments where you look in the mirror and realize that you're not good enough for that. And I, I had already begun the process of working with the 1994 National Teacher of the Year, Bill Strasball. And he was so kind and gracious to me, and he gave me everything that he had. Um, as it pertains to how to teach golf and what was important. And he told me straight to my face that uh, when he was um, teaching me, he would show me that I was, what's the word I'd be looking for? He told me that he was, if I ever wasn't good enough or felt like I wasn't good enough to play, that I should strongly consider being a coach because I had a natural knack for it. And having somebody who would be considered at the time – one of the greatest teachers in the world, look at a kid who's 21 years old and say, Hey buddy, you have a gift for this and you should consider using it. If this whole playing thing doesn't work out. And of course he had a little wink, wink in it. Like you're good, buddy. But you're not that good. good yeah. <laughs> so, and I took it to heart and I, it really matters to me that my players get better because in all actuality, one of the bigger challenges that I had, was that I had a coach who was one of the nicest and most influential people in my life, but he was really old school. And a lot of the things that he taught me how to do, 
are what I now call uh, teaching you how not to suck instead of teaching you how to be good. Yeah. So I had taken it way inside and I dropped it way inside and I hit this really powerful draw and he taught, he taught me a ton of power and a ton of speed and I did hit a big draw. But at the end of the day, when I went to go see Jim McClain uh, in 1999, when I'd gotten to the point where I was so, I was playing so good that I at least needed to reconsider what I was thinking. He said, he showed me video of my swing versus Greg Norman's swing. He flipped Greg Norman's swing around left-handed because he was my idol, Greg Norman. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, Virgil, I got some good news and some bad news for you. I said, the good news is you're really, really talented and you're a heck of a student because you're doing exactly what your coach wants you to do. The problem is, is that what your coach is asking you to do, nobody does on the PGA Tour. So you're really good at doing it wrong. <laughs> and that really crushed me. I bet if we had track man at that point, my, my, my path was probably uh, eight or nine degrees inside out. Wow. And probably two down. I hit down on it a lot. I hit it so far and it was just so intoxicating to hit it that solid, but I didn't have good distance control and I, I overdrew the golf ball. And when he showed me what Greg Norman did versus what I did, that was like an explosion, like a volcanic eruption occurred in my head that I needed to stop this idea that I could play and make sure that thousands of kids that come to my doorstep never have to struggle with what I struggled with, which was trusting somebody. And, and granted, he was an awesome person, trusting somebody to take your game to the next level and finding out later on that the information was flawed. I just made sure that my players never had to deal with that. Yeah. So uh, probably your most notable uh, student, Brant Snedeker. How did you how did you end up coaching him? So in 2000, I had moved to Hermitage Golf Course. I'm sorry, 1999, I moved to Hermitage Golf Course. And maybe mid-July of 1999, uh, there was a gentleman named Harry Taylor who played on the PGA Tour. And I didn't know at all. Was on the driving range hitting balls. And he looked like he was swinging gingerly. So I just walked over and I'm, I'm new to Hermitage and I'm new to basically new to Nashville. And I'm asking, you know, what are you working on? How's your game? Blah, blah, blah. What do you do for a living? And he looked at me when I asked him, what do you do for a living? As if I was a three headed dragon. <laughs> and uh, he goes, you're, you're, you're kidding, right? I'm like, um, I really felt bad at that point because it, he it made it sound like I had no idea who he was, which is true. And he goes, I'm Harry Taylor. I said, well, I'm Virgil Herring. Nice to meet you. He goes, I play on the PGA Tour. I'm like, oh, my God. I had no idea. <laughs> so he, uh, he is the most impactful person in my business career because he ended up bringing me so oh, – every tour player that I had except Vance Veazey, who Brant brought me. But he brought me Stuart Smith, Bob Walcott, Brad Fable, Cliff Kresge, uh, LPGA player, Kim Williams. I mean, everywhere we went, he was my biggest supporter and mainly because he was a self-taught player too. And he had never had anybody be able to help him. He had always had to figure it out for himself. And we hit it off, uh, really well. Well, he played with Brad Fable and Bob Walcott and Brant at the golf club of Tennessee. And Brant at this time had finished in the top 10 of every college event he had played in, in college as a freshman. But it had been, you know, 
everybody was telling him he was so good, but he was just didn't have a he didn't have a good enough golf swing to compete. Just an awesome short game. So yeah. they all, all of course, you know, it doesn't at that particular point it doesn't hurt me that the three people playing with him were all making money playing on the PGA Tour, and they're all working with me saying, "Hey, man, you got somebody right in your backyard." that can help take you to the next level. He came to see me and um, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. I had no idea what was going on. It was probably mid April of 2001 and he, he comes to see me and we, I worked with him for three hours, the first lesson. And we, we changed a thousand things cause he wanted to change it all. I want to fix it all. So for three hours, we get the golf club more outside toe up, the club face a little more down the line instead of across the line and shut. And we worked hard on feeling like the downswing was more in a fade position because he was so stuck and closed from his backswing. And so he was hitting it pretty good. And I said, well, when do you want to go again? He goes, well, I have to go now because we're taking off to go play in the SEC championship. Uh, so I'm playing tomorrow in, in uh, Hilton Head. I'm like, Snedeker, did you just tell me that we just changed everything four hours before you're playing in the SEC championship? He goes, yeah, coach, I don't care. I got it. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to shoot a million. I mean, I changed everything. He finished sixth. And that's immediately when I knew that I wasn't dealing with somebody that was normal. He has the ability to compartmentalize fear and courage and confidence into a very precise point that he can use them all to his benefit. And he, he just committed like unbelievable amounts of mental commitment to what he was working on, trusted it and almost won a tournament with a complete overhaul 24 hours prior. That's crazy. It really is crazy. And then I had a nice eight year run with Brant culminating, uh, the, with his first PGA Tour win and PGA Tour Rookie of the Year. And then uh, he, he chose to go a different route in 2008. And the story's been written. Certainly the, the most mentally gifted player I have ever taught and the greatest. I still think he's one of the five greatest putters in the history of the game and certainly one of the 30 or 40 greatest short wedge shot hitters I have ever seen in my life. Uh, so spectacular from 30 yards and in. It's unbelievable. What do you think helped him the most to, to get like that? Uh, I, I would have to say that he would attribute almost all of his success to the fact that his older brother, Hames, who I think he won big break three on the golf channel, if not three, number four, and played in the Disney tournament with him a long time ago, I think maybe 2008 or nine, they, um, they played together there. But Hames was the best player in the state. Played at Ole Miss, won the SEC championship in 1999. So he wasn't as gifted as Haynes. Haynes was a great athlete. Brant's not a great athlete. Good athlete, but not a great athlete. Haynes was good at everything. Haynes was told how good he was going to be, how awesome he is. And Brant always lived in that shadow of Haynes. And he told me that the first time that he beat Haynes, which was the Music City Amateur, um, that was that was a bigger hurdle for him than beating Tiger Woods for the first time. Wow. So it was definitely – he was driven by a very talented older brother, and his older brother was paralyzed with perfection, and usually the firstborn child struggles with that. Uh, <laughs> no and, exception here. And it's one of those things where 
you know, I think that when you start thinking, you know, he was so, he wanted to prove himself that he was better than his brother. So he had to work at things that Hames wasn't good at. And Hames wasn't good as him in the short game. So he just locked in on being what I call a putting neutralizer. He neutralized the game because where it usually took people two strokes to make putts, he'd do it in one to make up for his lack of driving prowess or his iron play being off. And that's when I knew it's not very difficult for me to get somebody to hit the ball great. It's difficult for me to get somebody to score well inside of 100 yards when they haven't put in the work when they were a kid. It's not easy to gain that talent probably after 24. So he had all of those gifts. And so the the desire to beat his brother really helped steal his resolve and get his head in the right competitive place because he knew his brother wasn't going to give it to him. And he had to learn how to fight probably harder than he ever thought he could fight to win. And when he did, that gave him the confidence to know that he could do it against anybody. And that's when he, when he beat Haynes for the first time to win the music city amateur, he, he exploded. And that's when he became the number one collegiate player, number one amateur. And then well, got his, you know, corn fairy tour card, in seven or eight weeks after he graduated. And it's obviously nine wins and $88 million later. It's been a pretty good run. <laughs> I would say so. Um, so fast forward a little bit to now, um, where uh, we kind of covered this a little bit earlier, but where did you get uh, what you teach now? Like where did you get your swing philosophy? I guess you could call it. Well, I would I consider myself a master benchmarker. So when I was uh, – my first job was at a golf course that's no longer in Nashville. It's called Through the Green. Franklin, it is now a, a Regions Bank and a Chick-fil-A. Um, <laughs> but we, it was a, we had a great teaching facility, a great short game area, and a little nine-hole executive course that was lit. And my coach at that time – or the, the, ball, my, the director of instruction area was Rob Rennell. And Rob at the time was considered the best teacher in Tennessee, won the teacher of the year a couple of different times. And he told me that I needed, there's no chance that I was going to be able to go see all the great teachers, but all the great teachers have written books. So there was a day, it's hard to hard to believe this, but in like in the late nineties and early two thousands, Barnes and Noble would have sofas and chairs in the, in the store. And I literally on my days off would read eight or nine books of the best teaching professionals in the world. Wow. And I'd take my note, uh, notes over there and I started to what I call systematically put together the similarities between the greatest coaches. I began to call them fundamentals and even that, that list got so big that they couldn't be fundamentals. And then I understood more and I realized I broke it down into three things. There are five things that everybody does if they become good. And there's a bunch of things that I would say are, stereotypically good in players, which would be swing plane. I don't call swing plane a fundamental, but there's a, there's a, there's certainly a degree of synchronicity that allows the golf club to look like it travels on a line when it's good. But if that was the case, we wouldn't have never heard of Trevino or Furyk or Matt Wolf. So we can't say that there's one way to do it. So I have, you know, fundamentals of greatness, characteristics of greatness. And then the final piece is idiosyncrasies, things that only you do. 
And so when you think of idiosyncrasies, you got to be thinking of Furyk, Matt Wolf, mm-hmm. uh, Trevino, David Duvall, people that had un- unique golf swing, Dustin Johnson today, Kepka today. They do things a little differently. It looks a little different, radically, radically successful. And I just began to, I created a system with gigantic windows. There's no such thing as the golf swing. There are, there are certain things that have to happen, and there are parameters that the golf club has to fall in. And I just began every golf lesson with the fundamentals. And as soon as I had the fundamentals in place, we would work on swing plane. And so, you know, some how the body loads and unloads in the downswing, et cetera. And then I would figure out after we have all of the fundamentals and after all of the characteristics of greatness are in, we find out what of those things you aren't able to do. And those are your idiosyncrasies. And we make the, you the best that you can be with the, within that three piece parameter. Yeah, of course, with the performance of um, the actual golf swing, I know something uh, that's been big for me working with you is um, how do you think the mental game correlates with performance? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Carter. Let's look at it this way. There's no real reason to try to access muscle memory when the muscle memory is not refined enough to try to access it. So at the developmental stages of the game, everybody's trying to earn, learn, and acquire the muscle motion fundamentals so that they don't have to think about it. So once you have, you know, a repeating golf swing, that's where it shifts from the physical to the mental to the physical because everything starts in the brain. So the most important things to understand about the brain are is the prefrontal cortex is the CEO, the control panel of your, of your body and your, of your life. So it's really good at keeping you safe, but it is not really good at letting you go. And So you have to use the prefrontal cortex to call your shot. I want to hit this driver. I'm going to aim it at that tree and hit a little eight-yard draw, and I want it to fly about this high, and I need it to carry that bunker. That is a left-brain prefrontal cortex directive thought. That is the end of your left-side action because at that particular point, you should be your body, your brain should be asking your body to make a motion in a rehearsal practice swing that would simulate what is required to make that shot occur. Now, you, because you've created the mental picture, the brain now goes to another place in the brain to acquire the stored talent. So when you want to hit a draw, you decide you're going to take it slightly more inside. This is not for everybody. This is just an example. I'm going to aim a little more right, take it a little more inside and feel like I'm going to swing a little more inside out or towards second base if you're a right-handed golfer. That is a right-sided concept thought that does not interfere with the speed that the, the brain's sending the impulses to the muscles. So what it really comes down to is you have to give yourself an intention. You have to visualize the intention. You have to rehearse the intention, and then you have to step in and hit the shot as fast as you comfortably can. 
so that doubt doesn't creep in and you don't give yourself enough time to question your decision. A lot of people are so talented that they say they want to hit a draw and they get up there and they look at the shot and they start to say, maybe I should fade it or maybe I should even try to draw it. Maybe I should just hit it straight. And you start second guessing, third guessing and fourth guessing your game plan and the fear of not having selected the right shot. Key word there is fear engages what the prefrontal cortex. And now you go into what is called perfectionist mode where you try to perfect make every inch of the golf swing perfect to keep you safe from hitting a bad shot. And all that that actually does is guarantee that you hit a bad shot and to learn how to one forgive yourself from hitting bad golf shots because this game is really hard is one of the main reasons why Virgil teaches and doesn't play. I was not very forgiving of myself when I didn't hit the shots that I wanted to hit under the gun. And the fact that I was so hard on myself further engaged the wrong part of my brain when I got stressed, scared, or afraid to fail because that made me want to be more perfect, not trust myself and have faith. And at the end of the day, the people who end up making it at the highest level might not be the most talented people you've ever met but they have the greatest blend of the ability to trust their talent is good enough to hit the shot required and don't let any interference get in the way of it. That is why Brant Snedeker is on there. And I literally have taught 25 players and probably seven or eight of them that were exactly his age. When he graduated, that was the greatest class of golf in this state, probably in 30 years. And he was, I would say there was 10 Division I players in the, in the area, all big, big time Division I, like Vanderbilt, UT, mm-hmm. Alabama. And um, he was the least talented of them all and beat all their butts bad. And why? It's because he never allowed his the fear of an outcome to get in the way of his desire to win. That's a big statement. He did not allow the fear of failure to overcome his desire to win. And that is why he is playing on the PGA Tour and others who, in my opinion, were significantly more talented physically gifted-wise. They didn't make it because the fear of failing and letting others down overrode their desire to win. Yeah, and you would know better than me, but I think the whole mental game process, bypassing the prefrontal cortex, all that stuff is – a hundred times harder than the golf creating a golf swing would ever be. Uh, well, that might also help you understand you. Um, I would probably say not necessarily, but when people have put a lot of energy into being great and they haven't achieved their level of greatness to their satisfaction, they double down on pressure on themselves. And when they double down on the pressure, all they're doing, they just did exactly opposite of what they were hoping to do. They were trying to get better by doubling down. And in all actuality, they got twice as worse because they were putting the wrong things in the forefront of the mind and fear overcame the desire to compete. And that that's one of the biggest issues in all of performance 
in anything in life. Yeah. So, so moving, moving from the mental game more back to the swing itself, what, what is the, the most common fault you see? I know it's different, a little bit different for everybody, but if you had to choose one, what would it be? Uh, I would without a doubt say that it's um, the pivot of the backswing, the, the ability or inability to coil into your back leg with your back leg staying braced and your upper body coiling into it. I'm here to tell you that if anybody can pivot in the backswing, get their left shoulder over their right knee without the right leg moving and can get to a balanced finish, you can play enjoyable golf and not have a clue about what you're doing. But if you can't pivot, you can't play. And that's an exclamation point. No pivot, no contact. And it's, yeah. an, it's an unenjoyable endeavor until you can learn how to harness the backswing windup. And when you do that and you can attach it to a finish position, every shot you hit will all of a sudden start to make sense to you because if it goes way left, you'll feel that your club face was closed at impact and you'll begin to adjust what your hands feel like coming through the ball. But if you don't, if you're not able to pivot correctly, it makes all of your errors work in reverse. So if you're hitting a big slice and the ball starts way left and goes way right, and the coach tells you, hey, you know, if you really want to get rid of that slice, you got to swing more to the right. And the first thing everybody be like, swing more to the right. Did you see how, how right that golf ball went? I got to swing more left. Like, no, no, no. It's going <laughs> right because you're swinging so outside in that you're putting slice spin on the ball. And they can't wrap their head around the fact that they got to swing more in the direction of where their ball is errantly flying to fix it. And that's really what, what drives people crazy is the when they're not in a position that the golf swing makes sense, the error makes sense, it's exact opposite. That's what drives people out of the game is that they can't comprehend the, the system of happenings that are causing things to go wrong. And the most logical answer is the most wrong answer. And I call that job security. Yeah. That is, I've, I've experienced that and it's, it's not fun. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> um, so with people, uh, everybody, or at least a lot of people I play with, they all seem to have their own, um, swing philosophies of what they think they're doing wrong, what they think they need to do. What is the most common misconception of the golf swing that you hear? Hmm. The most common misconception. Um, well, there's about 10 of them. Let's see if I can fix that. <laughs> like the biggest misconception is what does it mean to get behind it? What does it mean to stay behind it? Those two are pretty big. So a get behind is what causes the sway if you don't know that you're supposed to pivot. So I got to get behind it. So I got to get more B behind it. So the, sh the hips shift hard to the right. And even though more of you got behind the ball, so you've effectively done what you put your mind to, you only shifted weight right. You didn't coil weight right. So you've actually not wound anything up to create power. You've just moved yourself right. And then – for those of people who haven't gotten to the point where they got to get behind it, they're always saying, you got to stay behind. You got to have your head behind the golf ball when you hit it. Well, that's another misconception because you keep your head behind the ball of all golf shots you hit with the ball starting in front of your head, driver, three wood, maybe hybrid. 
Mm-hmm. You you hit the ball with your head over the ball when you start with the ball right underneath your head. So right. Most of your irons. And you are in front of all balls that the ball starts behind your head. So you within the motion, you're not always behind the ball. So that, that drives people bananas. And then the, the, most people think that you hit, to hit the ball up, you have to hit down. And that's not true. And, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to the 3D dynamics of impact. But of all the things, those three things are one, two, and three in the misconception pile. Yeah. Well, and especially I think a lot of these form with, with YouTube and so much with uh, so many differing opinions. And if you watch three videos, they'll all say three different things. Yeah. And that's the, that's the danger of being a self taught player in the world of YouTube is, you know, when you're typing in, how do I fix a slice? How do I fix a, fix a hook? How do I knock down a wedge? And you have no idea what it is that you're not doing to be able to do that. Right. So you're relying on somebody who's not ever seen you, doesn't even know you, to be able to tell you what it is that you're doing wrong. And once again, (laughs) job security for me. Because most people have no idea why they're drawing it. But if they... If they watch somebody who says you're drawing it because you're hitting it too far from the inside, you got to hit more from the outside, but they're actually hooking it because their ball position is too far back in their stance. But you're talking about a guy who can't yeah. hit it anymore. Right. And now he wants to quit. I suck. I, I just had the best teacher in the world help me with my hook, <laughs> and now I can't hit it. Well, just because you, you are hooking it, but you've picked the wrong problem. So now you got another problem. You've now added another thing into your swing that was that's not right while thinking that it was. And that's how people get in trouble is they, they buy into somebody's methodology. And if they don't understand what they do wrong, they're, they're way more likely to pick the wrong thing and have more problems at the end of the day than they would be to fix the right thing. Probably that's a 90-10 outcome right there. 90% of the people use those videos and get worse, not better. Yeah. Well, I think as, especially as you get more advanced too, right? I mean, there are going to be differing opinions on the grip, but for the most part, they'll be in, in the right area compared to trying to break 70. Correct. So I've got some... Some questions from Instagram. Um, different people have sent in to ask. Uh, the first one being, how important is the pre-shot routine? The pre-shot routine is important uh, mainly when you're asking yourself to perform and the score matters. The pre-shot routine is what helps you make every shot feel the same, no matter if it's to win the Masters or if it's just a practice shot the ability to create an environment in your head that is systematically about the same amount of time covering the same key points that are benefiting you to play the best golf you can. That's uh, I would say very important. It's not very important when you're learning the game minus a general routine of how to walk into the ball. But what I call a pre-shot routine has a lot of moving parts to it 
that include decision making, commitment, all those things that a, a person who's not competing would not be thinking of. And it certainly it does have, you know, body balance and ball position and posture and all of those things in it as well. But I just think that there's a, a different level of pre-shot routine when you're talking about competing versus just practicing. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so next question um, is what, what are different tips on breaking 80 versus breaking 70? So I'm assuming it's, it's kind of what, what are the differences in goals or what should they be? Uh, well, when you're trying to break 80 for the first time, you're still mainly in a, a fairway hitting greens and regulation and two putting goal game plan. You know, because if you're shooting 85 and all of a sudden you shoot 79, more than likely it is because you hit more greens and regulation. Okay. Okay, more than likely. Not always, but a vast majority or a much higher percentage than not, the greens and regulation numbers reach a certain point where all of a sudden you start two-putting for pars a lot and you stop making bogeys, double bogeys, and triple bogeys. Much like Scott Fawcett says, at the end of the day, stop trying to make birdies, stop making bogeys and doubles and triples. So you're always trying to eliminate the big numbers and the mistakes. And great golf is way less sexy than you think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. My, my best round is by far one of my worst ball striking days. And that'll, that you'll be shocked at how many times you'll say that in the next 30 years of your life. um and then next question is what's what's the number your number one tip to to stay consistent with your golf swing well it's a loaded it's a very loaded question the most important thing to maintaining your golf swing is to first understand correctly that's a big word what it is that you do wrong habitually and those things I would almost always say come out uh, in pressure. So when all of a sudden you're you're feeling the urgency to compete and you compete in the right way, the part of your brain that goes offline, the control panel, allows your body to be natural. And when you're natural, you'll tend to do what you've always done. So the reason why I have job security at the highest level is because the more you compete correctly, the more all of the training that you've done to take away your error slowly gets watered down. And you all of a sudden, if you're a person who's always taken it slightly inside and closed, and you've worked really hard to get it outside and square, under the gun, nervous, you'll see the club will tend to go inside and get shut because you're not trying to make perfect golf swings. You're trying to make a motion that produces a, a shot. And so if you can understand where your default nervous tendencies take you, that allows you to put things in your pre-shot routine to eliminate them to the best of your ability and to keep it from getting farther and further off the rails before you need help. So basically, you have to learn how to understand your game, the problems that you have, and you're always looking for new and interesting antidotes to the problem and like you know brand is a perfect example i mean I, there's no swing i know more than brands 
Brant still does wrong what he was doing wrong when he was 16 years old when he's losing it on the PGA Tour. He's not doing anything different. A club goes inside, gets a little closed. His head dips down because of that. He gets out in front of it a little bit, falls back with his head, and slings it out to the right, and he hits blocks and hooks. Well, he hasn't stopped doing that. And the good news is, is that he never will. His job, and he's done a great job of it, is to stay on top of all of those things to the best of his ability. So it takes more and more stress in his in the event before he gets to that position. And that's the ultimate key. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely – the difference in my swing on the range or in a lesson is so much different from on the course – ridiculous yeah and once again you put an unfair amount of expectation on the result and an unfair amount of process you 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 don't put as much value in the process yet as you do in the result oh you're getting better but you're still consumed by shooting a score that people would be proud of and when you get past that point that you're okay with who you are no matter if you shoot 65 or 85 and it's just a moment in time and it's just a day and it's just a golf score. That's when people break through when it's no longer your life. It's just something you get to do and have fun with it while learning how life works. That's when you break through. But a lot of people take it so seriously because you put so much into it. You think that you should do that. That makes sense. I need to demonstrate that I care. I need to demonstrate that I'm trying hard. But in all actuality, to perform at the highest level, you don't need to try. You've already earned the right. You have to let it go. And that's a, that's a hard thing to learn. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and final question from Instagram is, uh, what's, what's one quality you see in the pros that set them apart from amateurs? Well, physically speaking, they hit the ball so much longer and straighter. Uh, they, they know how far they hit the golf ball in the air from driver to lob wedge. Their shot dispersion is very predictable. And they putt better than everybody else. The worst putter on the PGA Tour would literally destroy the best putter at your club every day. And that includes people who you think are terrible, like VJ Singh or Tom Kite or Rory McIlroy is a good example. Rory sucks at putting. He's a terrible putter. He would destroy everybody at your club embarrassingly bad <laughs> with his putting. And that's like that's a humbling piece for some people to think about. Because most people believe that Rory McElroy is only better than them because he hits it longer and straighter than he does. But they don't they don't recognize that even though he doesn't putt like Brant or he doesn't putt like Jason Day, he puts it really good. It's just it distinctly shows that if he putted not even like Brant or Jordan Spieth or Tiger in his prime, but if he just was strokes gained neutral, like he just didn't give any away, he almost would never lose. I mean, it just shows how important putting is in the game. Well, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the people who win on the PGA Tour, they do they do two things. They hit it better than everybody else that week, and they they putt slightly better than their average to way better than their average. Hardly ever does somebody win 
by putting worse than usual. And obviously not very often do they win with a negative strokes gain putting. It has happened. Uh, VJ Singh is the king of winning golf tournaments with negative strokes gain putting, but um, not very often. I always look at it in the way that it's how, how does the ball get in the hole most of the time? It's by putting, right? That's the ultimate yeah. decider. Yep. So. And putting is, putting is its own art. So there's a lot that goes into it, and it's very painful because you can hit perfect putts that don't go in because of the imperfections on the ground and the ability to misremember your missed putts that matter are really critical in your performance going forward because it's the memories that you store that become very powerful when you're competing. And if you have missed a bunch of putts in your life that really matter, if you don't have the ability to forget and move past, those will be the things you think about right before that putter goes back. And almost always that will lead to a miss. For me, for me personally in putting, it's kind of funny because the putts that don't matter as much. Oh, I mean, I'll just the past few tournaments I played is absolutely horrible in putting. But if you look at my golf career of sorts, uh, and you look at the two most important putts, I would say the two putts that I knew I needed to make to win. One was a twelve footer. One was a forty footer. I made both of those. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you what I did differently, but just something I, I knew I needed to make them, and I did. Um just kind of crazy. Well, I think that you, you've kind of talked to yourself right there of a lot of about what's going on in your, in your game. So I might, I might want to re-listen to a minute 49, about 200 times in the, in your next, you know, 10 years of your life, because you just gave away all of your secrets right there. <laughs> and uh, when you get better at that, that's when you'll become the best version of yourself. Yeah. So, your golf game, I've played with you a few times. Um, how, how would you describe your golf game currently? Um, I'm, as, I'm not as talented physically as I used to be. I have a lot of back, back issues, uh, mainly from National Long Drive days in the, in the late 90s. I played better in 2020 than I have played since 1998. And... And I don't really compete in tournaments anymore because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all right now. It's about getting my boys through school and getting them into golf tournaments. And it's about their life. So if I, if I win a golf tournament, most golf tournaments that I could play right now in the section, I'm, I would win and make less money if I had just taught golf. And at the end of the day, my job is to make sure that my family is, is taken care of and my boys are taken care of. And that right now requires me to, to do what I'm supposed to do. So last year I had 20 rounds of golf under par and 14 of those rounds in the sixties that I can't even remember the last time that that was the case. Um, it had to be, it was definitely in the late eight, late nineties that I had that many rounds of golf under par. But I would say that the biggest change for me is the fact that, the driver technology, certainly the, in my opinion, the, the Maverick driver is the greatest driver I've ever hit. It's the fastest and most accurate driver off heel hits is where I usually hit my driver when it's not perfect. So I drive the golf ball better than I've ever driven it in my life right now. 
I still drive it very long. I still hit it about three thirty, but I'm I'm significantly more accurate. I hardly have any more any foul balls. I still probably hit about fifty five percent of my fairways, but I don't have any I don't have any reloads anymore. And yeah. so when you drive it as long as that, you're going to have a lot of short irons in. So I hit a lot of greens and regulation, and I've worked really really hard on taking the perfection out of my putting and turning it from a science to art. And I'm more, I'm more interested in the art of hitting a good putt instead of making it. And when I took the pressure off of making the putt and turned it into the art of hitting a perfect putt, not, not if it goes in or not, but I did everything the way I wanted to do it. I started making more putts and I haven't, I've only played one time in 2021 and it was blowing 35 miles per hour and it was 39 degrees. So I don't, I, I do that. I call that enjoyable golf. I did keep score and it was in the high seventies, but if I keep driving it, like I'm driving it and I can put it anywhere close to where I did in 2020, I'll feel good about taking my game anywhere. Uh, because I know that I can compete. Yeah. So on top of being golf instructor, you also do uh, uh, Callaway fitting. Uh, so what, when you decided to do that, what made you choose Callaway over other brands? Uh, well, it really helps when Phil Mickelson's a part of the program, if you're a left-handed golfer like me. So most of the time, especially early in, in my golf career, there was not the the premium equipment was not made left-handed. Like they didn't make blades left-handed until uh, the a person that I referenced earlier, Harry Taylor, designed irons from Mizuno. He made the first blade left-handed MP32s, and that's the first time I had ever had a performance golf club in my hand. And I was already at that point 27 years old, 28 years old. Um, I had been playing cavity backs, and there's a lot of benefit to playing cavity backs until you hit it super solid. And as far as I hit it, you don't want that artificial jumper coming off the face. Right. And I was always fascinated by that. So Callaway was because Phil Mickelson was part of the, the team, everything that they made right-handed, they were making left-handed. And I owe a lot of that to Phil because without him, who knows where I'd be, but it would always be with the second best clubs, not the best clubs. And there's no question that played a teeny bit of a role in my difficulties growing up because you couldn't get the good left-handed drivers uh, without them looking like, you know, they were set up to hook and they couldn't get the blades or the high performing irons. I always had to get the cavity backs. And that, that was a big deal to me. So I fall in love with the understanding the importance of club fitting and you've gotten a great dose of understanding the importance of club fitting too. 100%. Um, without it, you got nothing. <laughs> so it's a major it's a major player the mental game the physical game the short game the emotional and course management and club fitting are the major components to playing the, the game at a high level and if you don't have clubs that are fit for you then well you don't you're not really serious about competing yeah and i think a lot of people don't realize how misfit their clubs were i didn't i mean I didn't until we, we looked at them and I actually tried clubs and had clubs that actually do fit me. It's crazy, the difference. Yeah. Yep. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. So 
on top of also being a fitter and instructor, you also have uh, written some books. So tell me about uh, the golf journal. So the golf journal I designed to set up for people to uh, log their games. I'm, I'm big. I'm a big believer in you owning your game. So my books are designed to make my books become your book. So by you doing what I'm asking you to do and you journaling it, you learn about your game. And as I put fundamentals and visuals and things inside the book and you're putting your things inside the book, all of a sudden my book becomes your book. And that book becomes your Bible for your own game. And you'd be surprised if there's 200 pages for you to enter your rounds of golf with the statistics you would see remarkably that all of your good rounds say the same thing and all of your bad rounds say the same thing. And if you have enough history of understanding what you tend to do, you will start to make a, what's the best way to mean it? You'll start to have a game plan on how to set yourself up to succeed way more frequently than fail. Uh, well, I mean, I, I love statistics and in, in really anything. I like numbers. So being able to lay something out and be able to to see it on paper is a big deal for me. 100%. So your other book, Elevated, tell me a little bit about that. So Elevated is a book based on um, I, we myself and my co-author, a great friend of mine, former Vanderbilt basketball star Drew Maddox, uh, wrote a book together and it's called Elevated. And it's we picked 50 words that you would say are synonymous with helping people become better, helping people perform better in their lives, both academically, athletically, and in the business world. And I did it because he said that he, he'd never written a book before and didn't think he could. And I, I'd already written the golf journal. I told him that it wouldn't be very difficult. And I just wanted to do a book with somebody else because the first one was pretty boring, but to be able to do it interactively with another, another person, especially somebody I respect so much, was a huge deal to me. And I would have never guessed that it had turned into uh, the number one selling book for five weeks in sports and, and uh, basketball, golf, and performance. So to be number one for five straight weeks uh, got us thinking that we had something that was powerful. We created a podcast out of it, and it's been a very huge success for us. And we're now on the, currently in the process of writing our second book uh, with a similar uh, – Similar game plan, different words. When can we expect that book? Oh, July. Okay. Some Sometime in the summer. I would say between June 15th and August 1 would be a very good guess. Okay. Looking, I'm looking forward to that then. And then you mentioned your elevated podcast, but you also have a podcast with you and different guests uh, on The Verge. Tell everyone a little bit about that. So... On the Verge was a was a was a piece uh, brought to me by a client of mine who invested in me because he had listened to me doing radio for 17 years, but wanted me to ask the questions that I asked to people in a non golf format. And he said that he would cover it as long as I named it On the Verge. So uh, I thought it was pretty catchy. I liked it, and I used it to. Uh, create a new platform for me. It's something that I love uh, a lot. It's, it's a free interview for me to get better. And 
as a person. It's a, and I get a chance to be around the greatest people talking about what made them great. They talk about something they had to persevere through to get to the top. And I get a chance to hear what they do to recharge their batteries, their favorite things to do in their life. And every single person I've interviewed has enriched my life. And it may be even better for me than it was for them to be on my podcast. Yeah. Well, I definitely think we've covered a lot of really, really solid information in this episode. Uh, Thank you again for joining me. My pleasure, Carter. Uh, Anytime, if you ever want to do a follow-up or you feel like there's something more things people want to hear about, just let me know. We'll do it again. Yeah, certainly. So where can people find out more about you if they wanted to? Uh, You can go to virgilherring.com or virgilherringgolf.com. Um, I'm on, I'm very active on all social media sites. I'm at virgil.herring on Instagram, uh, Virgil Torspin on Twitter. And then you can look me up on the other ones just in my name. I got my own YouTube channel. So yeah, and there's gonna be a lot more coming on YouTube coming up. Got some cool things in the can (coughs) coming. So I look for 2021 to be something special for me professionally outside of just teaching golf. See if I can't take a bunch of other things to the similar level of my golf coaching and enrich my life that way well awesome thank uh thank you for joining me and uh hopefully you'll be back on here soon i look forward to the opportunity buddy have a great day and uh thank you very much for this opportunity buddy thank you